If you have your Bibles, you'll want to <clears throat> turn with me to uh, Psalm 145. We're going to kind of camp out there for, for a little while this morning. Uh, Psalm 145. There's a passage in uh, verse 4 uh, that absolutely grips my life. And here's, here's how the psalmist captures this. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts of God. So I'm looking. Come on, Julia. Come on, John. I, I want to introduce you to John John Turner, and then there's a lady that I just met recently, like forever ago. This is Julia Siegel, and this is your microphone. John John, uh, we were, uh, John John and I had breakfast together the other morning, and we were talking about some ministry things together, and at the end of that conversation, just really interesting to me, isn't it really good to hang out with really old people? My favorite. No, no, be careful now. Um, but we really had a great conversation, and during that conversation, I just said to him, I don't know you all that well, and I want to know you because I really like you. Uh, tell me what you're going to do, and you said... Yeah, so I felt uh, recently, in the last few months, really called to ministry. I don't know what that looks like for my life. Um, and since I don't know what that looks like for my life, I really don't want to limit God on what he can do for my life. So uh, I applied to the Baptist College of Florida. They opened a campus up right across the street from my house, which is pretty great. Uh, and so going into that, I met with one of their, uh, I guess, supervisors, and I was like, What's the most general thing I can get? They basically have three tracks. It's worship, which obviously is like a huge part in my life. There's ministries, which I have a huge heart for Haiti. And I've been there, I think, six times now. And I have a huge heart for that. And uh, they have a pastoral track, which I've spoken a couple times uh, next door at the youth services. And I don't know. It was fun, I guess. <laughs> um, and so I'm not, I don't want to limit God on what he could possibly do through me. So I told them, what's the most general thing I can get? A little bit of everything. And it's a degree in ministry studies. So I'll be pursuing that in the fall. And you'll be all covering all three of those. Yeah. Am I right about that? Worship, yeah. ministry, and probably, possibly pastoral. Yep, all three. I, that is so cool. I, I'm telling you, that is so good. Now, don't, don't leave me. Uh, I, I, I want you to hear uh, what Psalm has said. One generation shall declare to the next generation the mighty acts of God. There are dozens of people in this room and that I've come to know in a very short time that could stand where John John is standing. I just happened to have breakfast with him the other day and I walked away from there thinking, and dude, you are the recipient of some declared realities of the mighty acts of God and family is such a, an important part of that in declaring his greatness, his goodness, and his mercy. And man, you're living it out. Congratulations. Way to go. I'm proud of you. I happen to know Julia a lot. We were sitting at their uh, dining room table and we had, I guess we just finished eating together. Is that true? We always eat together. And uh, her dad was uh, waxing eloquent about the book of Acts. And I don't know, I can't, I still can't, Julia, piece together exactly how we got into it. But dad was, well, dad was on a preaching mood, I think. And he was uh, helping us working through. And he, here's what he said. And then I want you to share with this, uh, with our, our church, 
what you said in response. He said, and I really love the book of Acts because there, they were, there were those being saved, being transformed, who were coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ daily, and you said. Um, I said since everybody was like coming to Christ every day, and there's, we have just amount, like the same amount of people as days of the year. So if everybody would save one person in a year, then we would have six, 365 people coming to Christ. I love this girl. I am not going to embarrass you. I won't hug on you much and kiss on you. I won't promise not to do that to John John. <laughs> but here's what I know. Guys, you, she is a part of my family, obviously. But it's one generation declaring to the next generation the mighty acts of God. And I want to tell you, preparation with no strings attached is a big deal. And I want to tell you the vision. Uh, we, we got real slow. I'll get into this with this crowd in a minute. You got into this really very slowly. Oh. Oh. Can you tell me with 140,000 people around us who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, why we would not see 365 come in this next year to faith in Christ? So, Julia girl, you're a good prophetess. And you have shared with us a truth, amen? Tell them thank you. You, you are a product of God's grace. Well, I, 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 just, um, I just felt like we ought to demonstrate in some way this reality that our kids, our next generations, will either grow into Christ-likeness or we will lose them. I am more encouraged by the generations that I've just interviewed that coming after me than I am with my generation. And here's why. Because there is embedded in many of them this insatiable hunger uh, to know him and to make him known. Now here's a little problem. And I, I, want, I want you to see two really quick quotes, if I may. Number one, let me show you, uh, let me just quote this. May I remind you, you cannot possibly pass down what you do not have. There's a second quote that I want you to hear and just came to me that I journaled as I was preparing to share with you this morning, and it's this. I must pass down to the next generation what God in Jesus Christ has given to me, and I would parenthetically say, or else I am a robber, and I have deceived them by my lack of generational care. And so this morning, we, we want to talk about that. I, uh, in, the, in this psalm, I, I love verse 4, 
and it's gripped me one generation will declare your works to the next and we will proclaim your mighty acts. And I, I, I think we can look at that and we can say, okay, uh, we get that. But here's what I want you to hear the psalmist say. I want you to hear him unpack this generational reality around three really simple ideas. He shares with us a startling reality. He shares with us a stunning revelation. And he proposes to us a striking obligation. Now I want to go all the way down to verse 13. If you have your Bibles open, go to verse 13. And here's what you're going to hear the psalmist record. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your rule is for all generations. Now if I'm you and I, I'm sitting there listening and I would say perhaps something like this. Okay, that's well and good, but that is an Old Testament passage, and I'm not sure that it has germane relational uh, connectivity to my life today. Well, let me tell you why that is not true, and it's found again in Scripture. For instance, uh, just go ahead and put up these three, uh, these three Scriptures, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I've hung my life on that reality. I, I, I just want you to hear me say, look at uh, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the one who put on, where God put on skin, and he came to dwell among us. But I really love the Revelator. John on the island of Patmos gives us a clear view of this stunning reality. He, he says to us, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to him who is, or from him who is and who was and who is to come. Do you know what he's saying? He is capturing the essence of the Old Testament view of God. The eternal God. The one who is and one who was and the one who is to come. And from the seven spirits or the Holy Spirit. I know of no one who looks at this passage that does, that's legitimate biblical scholar that does not understand. He is speaking of the Holy Spirit. And from the Holy Spirit, who is before his throne. And he says, and from Jesus the Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I would, I, I would say to you this morning that what I've just read to you alongside this great revelation out of uh, Psalms 145 is this. We are, we are absolutely encased in the reality of an eternal king, a never-ending kingdom, and the one who gives eternal life to us. He is our eternal God. But juxtaposition next to that is this absolutely incredible thing we also live in the middle of disappointment, 
of defeat, of dejection, of denial, and dying. I got up yesterday morning and was scrolling down through my Facebook posts. I have a good friend named Don Purvis. Lived next door to us in seminary. His wife is named Peggy. They have two boys. Rocky and Paul. Mark was not living at that point. He was at least a thought in my mind. We get that. Um, but we had our oldest son who became really good friends with Rocky mostly. Yesterday, their son, Don and Peggy's son, Rocky and Sherry, his wife, married their son, Matt, while they grieved. 2.30 in the morning yesterday, the death of Josh, their son. I don't know that, I don't know when I've encountered such a powerful, I'm standing in the midst of this great and majestic eternal God. I've been immersing myself in this scripture and I've embraced his eternality, his glorious goodness, his majestic acts. I've I've, I've just embraced his powerful love for me. And along comes this point of despair and devastation. So we live in that tension, that is until Jesus, our super saving Jesus comes to live in us. I'm telling you they're handling that. They married their son to their, their daughter-in-law now and they turned their attention to the awesome assignment of burying probably a 30-year-old in the next few hours. How do you do that? Well, you do that because of who we are and whose we are. I love Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and I want to put his quote on, on, the, on the screen for you. Uh, Spurgeon said, you need to know this, the more you know about Jesus Christ, the less you will be satisfied with a superficial view of him. Oh man, somebody say amen again. I'm telling you, I'm living. Don't get me started. We are living in the midst. My generation is demonstrating as no other generation a superficial religiosity in the name of Jesus Christ. But I tell you, I tell you, when you come to faith in him, when you receive Christ and this eternal, super-saving Christ, changes you forever, you'll never be satisfied with that shallow stuff. And I I, I hear it. I see it. 
in my own family, extended family. Just knowledge and conversation. I mess up more parties than you can imagine. I never tell somebody, say, no, sir, what do you do? I won't tell them. The moment that I tell them I'm a Baptist preacher, conversations close. <laughs> oh, yes, I think thou art the greatest of thine and themens and thoseens. Thou art forever and ever. You know what I want to say? Oh, shut up. <laughs> don't, don't. That's not in my notes. <laughs> Peggy's hoping I'm going to go on. See, what I want you to understand is that he is not living. The psalmist is not living in, a, in, an, in an environment that is super insulated with, from real life. He is living in the midst of those who have a knowledge of Yahweh, but they have no relationship to him, i.e. Nicodemus in the third chapter of John. There is a startling reality is that we live in the midst of eternalness up against the plague of confusion with denial and, de- and, and, and dejection and desperateness in the middle of hurt and pain and separation. But I love what he says. He goes on with a great, great idea. He says, but there is a revelation. When you look at chapter uh, 145 and you start with verse 5 and you go through that, can I just say to you how he describes God? He is teaching us. He says, Yahweh is is great and greatly to be praised. Our God is a God of splendor. Our God is a God whose mystery and majesty is beyond comprehension. Our God is a God whose wondrous works proclaim the power of his awe-inspiring acts and greatness. So, what's the issue here? It's a stunning revelation. I really like Kyle Eidelman's question. He raises this question, are you a fan or a follower of Jesus? I tell you, that that startled me. I wanted to protest the idiotic nature of such a question, only to discover he is exactly right. It's a great question. Are you a fan or a follower? And here's how he explains the difference. And I quote, Fans mistake knowledge about Jesus for intimacy with Jesus. Intimacy. I'm telling you a personal, life-changing relationship with Christ has kept me out of some deep stuff. And when I've strayed, I've strayed into that which is, is not of God. So when I when I ask the question, so, you know, for you, wh- why does all this matter? 
why are you so cranked up about all of this? Well, what does it really matter? Well, it matters a lot because, don't you love this? John 1, 1 and verse 14 is brilliant. He tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became Sark's flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. I, I, I look at that. God did something for us. He stepped, stepped out of that, that high and lifted up place, and He put on human flesh, he put on skin, and he dwelt among us. The, the literal is he pitched his tent among us, and we beheld his glory. Why is that important? Because every time I see Jesus, I see God. Every time I hear the voice of Christ, I hear the voice of God. Every time I take this book into my hands and I began to read and absorb it, I am absorbing the revelation of this great God. And I want you to hear me. I was... I know that I am in him and he is in me. And I want you to know as a dead man, now I am a new creation. Mark's quoted it, but here's what he says. Because he was with God in the beginning and all things were created by him. And apart from him, nothing was created. Life was in Jesus and that life is the light of men. I, I'm, it is a stunning Revelation of the love of God. But I, I tell you, it presses us. We have a striking obligation. You and I have a responsibility. And very candidly, we, we don't like that much. Would you listen again? While we revisit verse 4, one generation shall declare your works to the next, and they will proclaim the mighty acts of God. I've tried to figure out how do I land this? Well, I'm not anywhere near through, but I've got to finish. So I want to lend it with some really honest questions to you. I'm talking to us. I'm talking to all of us. We'll get to all of you. Here's a question. What is our generation declaring to our children, to our grandchildren, to our friends and church family about the glory of God and his mighty acts? I can measure it if you'll let me sit by the table and not know what I do for a living. We have fun. But we also talk about Jesus. A lot. There's a second question. What are we declaring and demonstrating about. Our profound. Our claimed. Profound love for Jesus Christ. Oh I hear it. You say, I know where you're going and I don't like it. I'll get to you in just a minute. 
just asking you. I, it's, a, it's a real question about our profound love for Jesus Christ. What, what are we saying to the next generation? I married into a home declaring the majesty and power of God. I didn't grow up that way. There's a third question. What are we declaring and demonstrating about our love for the Word of God? His profound revelation to the truth of God. I hear this inane and foolish response. Well, you know, Brother Siegel, there are three things I don't talk about in public. I don't talk about baseball, politics, or religion. Neither do I, but I sure do talk about Jesus. You know what that is? Can I, can I tell you plainly so you won't be confused? It's probably my last sermon at Manuals. Can I just read your mail? You likely don't know enough to tell someone about him. It would reveal what you don't know. Somebody would say, so. You're one of them fanatics. No, no, I just love Jesus. Well, well you just asked, answer me. Where'd God come from? Do you know I have an answer for that? I don't know. He is. He was. He shall ever be. But I don't. You figure that out, we'll crown you with the many crowns. There's another question. What are we declaring and demonstrating about the church, his bride? What's your view of the church? A club to which to, to join. Us four, no more. We love our little church. Or would you like to hear my definition? I've never pastored a church where I didn't teach them. We are a hospital for the broken, the wounded, the hurting, the despised, the rejected. Because candidly, ladies and gentlemen, you ain't much before Jesus. The Bible says that like me, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. My wife grew up as a WMU lady and a BTU lady and a choir lady and a lady and a deacon husband and a deacon father and a Sunday school teacher that helped me find Jesus. But can I tell you, she was in the same mess as me before Christ. Ephesians 2, dead. But aren't you glad for Jesus? Man, he wrapped me in his grace and mercy and he lifted me out of my death and breathed into me life. I am a brilliant creation of him. I am alive in him. He is in me. I am in him forevermore. What are we saying? I love our pastor when he talks about the altar. That's what he's talking about. An altar in the Old Testament and the New was seen as a place where we 
we can meet God. It's a place of remembrance. It's a place of confession. It's a place of forgiveness and restoration. It's also a place of salvation can be. So it dawned on me, I believe this church has the brightest future imaginable. And it's all about you. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to perpetuate families who are pouring one generation into the, the, the next generation the, the truth about the mighty acts of God. And I want us to willfully and deliberately say, Lord God, I am coming to this altar this place where I can meet God in my privacy and in my need and lay all that I have at your feet and I can find forgiveness and cleansing and restoration and I can stand to my feet and say it's never too late as long as I have breath. I'm going to read the scripture. I'm going to find a place of prayer. I'm going to ask for the clothing, the anointing, the power of God in my life. And I'm going to communicate to my family and my friends this great and glorious gospel. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. What a gospel. This altar is a place where you can trust Christ. Find him. There will be some pastors here who will love you and pray for you. In a moment, I'm going to give you opportunity to put legs to what the Holy Spirit is saying. I'm not here to chastise or to chasten. I'm here to unpack scripture and do what the prophets and what Jesus did to those who were followers of God, give us opportunity in a renewed moment to lay our lives at his feet. I, I'm just absolutely sure. You say, oh, but we don't, I, I don't do that. Can you tell me why? There can't be but one God in your life and you ain't it. I'm not it. And I want to surrender whatever he's placed in me for his glory and for the next generation's good. God is speaking to you. To me, this altar is going to be open. We're not, I'm not going to beg you to do anything against your will. I want to give you the privilege of being the very first one to, after we've prayed, to begin coming and saying, yes. I am willing to take on this charter out of the word of God. Lord, Lord, would you help us in these moments to be true and obedient to your obligation to us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Our folks are here. The altar is open. I'm going to just ask you to come. Lord, here's my life. Will you stand with me, please? Just find a way to get out and begin coming. We'll meet you here. Our team will love you and pray for you.